Hi, and welcome back to the GovLab's Collective Intelligence Podcast. Today, our guest is Angela Odor Lungadi. She's the executive director of the Kenya-based nonprofit organization, Ushahidi. Ushahidi is an online platform for crowdsourcing data in support of crisis relief, human rights advocacy, transparency, and accountability campaigns. The platform provides open source tools for organizations, companies, or individuals to crowdsource, analyze, and map geographically reference information. Especially in the early days of a crisis, whether an election dispute or a natural disaster, Ushahidi makes it possible to rapidly gather, validate, and share information collected from those on the ground with the wider public to aid in providing situational awareness and targeting the delivery of disaster relief. Angela, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. For our listeners who might be unfamiliar with Ushahidi, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with Ushahidi, could you please start by describing what Ushahidi is, how your platform works, and what you seek to accomplish through this work? Yeah, absolutely. So Ushahidi is a Swahili word that means testimony, and it seeks to answer the question, what's happening on the ground? How can we help keep each other safe? And how do we become a part of the solution? So we are a global non-for-profit tech company that develops integrated tools and services to enable people to generate solutions and mobilize communities for good. We build open source software to strengthen communities, improve lives, um, empower people to rapidly and purposely gather, analyze, um, respond, and act on data and information. So one, our flagship product is the Ushahidi platform that allows for collection of data by different streams. We have SMS, email, Twitter, the web platform, and smartphone applications. Just a really good way to help you get information in a near real-time, near real-time form, just get you to get a better understanding of what's happening on the ground really quickly and also really visualize it. And Ushahidi was created by a group of software developers and bloggers as a tool for tracking acts of violence in the aftermath of of Kenya's 2007 presidential election. Could you tell us more about how the project got started and and what problems uh, the platform's founders were trying to solve? This was back in 2007, 2008. You know, we had just had our general election in 2007. And that particular general election had been marked by very high tribal tensions. So when results were announced, they were primarily contested. And that resulted in violence breaking out across all parts of the country. Now, at the time, what was happening was primarily underreported or not reported at all. I think I remember most of us were stuck in our houses, knowing what was happening around within our vicinity, but not knowing what was happening in different places. And so what a group of ordinary Kenyans or the, what, what the founders did, we have Ori, David, Juliana, Eric, they came together to help ordinary Kenyans shed light on what was happening around them. And they built a platform where people could send a text message or fill out a web form and have that information aggregated and visualized on a map. So essentially they gave Kenyans a voice when no one else could or would, and people became empowered to document what was happening in the communities, be it violence, be it robberies, or, and share that information globally, meaning that not only those of us who are in Kenya at the time, not knowing what was happening, um, you know, could get that information, but even people in the diaspora who are concerned about what was going on could get to see it from the Ushahidi instance. And where possible, some of this data was actually fed to domestic and international investigators um, and prosecutors working towards accountability for crimes. So I think the main goal there was, you know, we're seeing our country literally burning. What can we do to empower people to just tell us what's going on and see if we can share that information with people who can help? And over the last 13 years, Ushahidi has grown to be a widely used platform for election monitoring, crisis response, advocacy, and human rights. What are some of the projects that people have created using Ushahidi software? 
So over the last 13, going on 14 years of Ushahidi's existence, it's grown to be used over 200,000 times in over 160 countries. You're looking at gathering over 50 million citizen reports to advance democracy, report incidents, mobilize crisis response, simplify research, encourage activism, address challenges, as well as influence change. You did mention a couple of those, for example, crisis response. We've seen the platform used to collect first-hand data from people affected by crisis to inform humanitarian response during earthquakes in Haiti, Nepal, Christchurch, as well as COVID-19, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about a little later in the podcast. When you look at human rights protection, we've had people tracking sexual harassment against women in Egypt, documenting the protests during the revolution, the Egyptian revolution in 2010. There's a group that's been publishing news from Iranian protests in 2018, and even recently using the platform to document police brutality in Portland during the Black Lives Matter protests. So it's really just been a tool to help activists use data to create awareness about human rights violations happening around the world. Um, And when it comes to election monitoring and good governance, it's looking at it as a way of empowering ordinary people to uphold the integrity of elections and democracies in their countries. So we've used it in Kenya a number of times since 2007. It's been used in Nigeria, in USA, in India, Cameroon, and many other countries. And the goal there is just really empowering ordinary people to send in messages about what's happening around them and then feed that over to people who can, who can act and respond to it. So really empowering people to protect their votes. And who primarily uses the software these days? And mm-hmm. when an individual or an organization wants to set up a deployment using the Ushahidi platform, how does that work and what are the steps involved? I think we, I, I've seen, and we've seen Ushahidi be used as an essential tool by, you know, you have individuals, you have advocacy groups, you have grassroots organizations, development organizations as well. That's, you know, local and international ones. Just basically people who are on the front lines of trying to promote social equity in the world. And when it comes to how, how to set up the platform, there are two options. You can download the software since it's open source and host, host it on your own servers, you know, set up your surveys and start collecting the data. And that, you know, you, you, it, it's basically, you know, your own. Or if you're not, for those who are not necessarily technologically savvy or for those who really need something spun up really quickly without having the headache of the maintenance that comes with hosting by yourself, you can sign up using an email address for our hosted service on shahidi.com and your instance will be set up for you within a matter of minutes. And all you need to do then is go in and customize your surveys, customize the data sources from which you're going to be collecting the data, but we then handle the maintenance. So those are the two ways that people can, you know, set up a deployment using the Shahidi platform. And you mentioned COVID-19 earlier, but of course the, the onset of the pandemic was a moment of crisis for people and institutions around the world. Could, could you talk more about how Ushahidi responded to that challenge? How did you change yeah. the, the software's pricing model to get the platform into the hands of more people? Absolutely. So when, when the World Health Organization declared COVID a pandemic, I think one several things became apparent, not, not only to us, but I think to the rest of the world. There were substantial information gaps. We didn't know what COVID was all about. We didn't know what the symptoms were. We didn't know where to get access to testing centers, ETC. And of course, when you have a vacuum of credible information, then misinformation will thrive. Second thing that we saw is, you know, every, you know, country, country to country, people are, put, you know, lockdowns are being put into effect. But while the lockdowns were effective in slowing down the spread of the disease, 
they had far-reaching economic and social effects on people because people lost their jobs. You know, the others lost their livelihoods. I think even in terms of people's mental health, it, it, it really did hit people hard. Um, but most of all, we also saw that governments had limited capacity to respond to a crisis at this scale. I remember it was around March. It was the, the, the March period. We got flooded with requests from nearly every country in the world all at the same time. I think the word uh, all hands on deck took a whole new meaning uh, for the team. One of the things that we recognized immediately was that we had a part to play in supporting groups who are coming to us to figure out how to become a part of the solution, people who needed to surface critical information. And so one of the first things that we did was immediately with the pricing off of our hosted service. Now, this is something we'd been thinking about prior to COVID hitting, but I think it was you know, the, the, the thing that just solidified, we need to make sure that this tool is accessible to people and make it accessible really quickly. And that's a decision that we've resolved to do for an indefinite period. And with that single action, we saw a surge in creation of the, of the Oshahidi platform. We saw instances being created, you know, nearly 20 to 40 of them in a day at some point. And it served as a strong validation for the power of collective intelligence and the need for platforms to empower ordinary people to take charge in solving problems in the communities. Because since then, we've seen over 2,500 instances deployed across 140 countries specifically for COVID, just for COVID. So we're seeing groups creating visibility into where to access critical resources and services, the others who are just tracking the general progression of the disease, others who are trying to fill information gaps for official response. So things like documenting people's testing experiences, whether they were getting access to medical care, and also trying to hold governments accountable for any shortcomings in responding to the pandemic. Obviously, with the progression over the last uh, couple of months to the last uh, two years, can't believe it's been two years of a pandemic, but we're seeing people also trying to focus more on some of the after effects of, of the pandemic. So trying to track what the economic effects have been in much more detail. We're seeing offshoots of human rights violations. You know, it might be domestic violence. It might be crackdowns on, on civil society. So those also things that we're beginning to see. And now with vaccine rollout, people really clamoring for vaccine equity, just trying to make sure that it's being distributed um, equitably around, around the world. Ushahidi platform is open source with the code available for download on GitHub. How important has this open source model been for Ushahidi's continual use and improvement? I would say very, very, very important because I think that the kind of exponential growth we've seen over the last 13 to 14 years of our existence is something that wouldn't have been possible if the tool wasn't open source. Making the tool open source was a deliberate effort by the Ushahidi founders to make it accessible to anyone anywhere in the world and lower the barriers of being able to interact with tech. I think the second thing is that with open source, it's, it's easy for people to adapt to adapt tools to their own local context without having, without having to start from scratch. So it, it also did kind of amplify this diversity of thought that also went into the product. The product is a reflection of that, which has ended up making the product much, much better. And could you talk about some of the benefits that crowdsourcing data about conditions on the ground brings to the organizations who use Ushahidi software? Absolutely. I think one of the first uh, immediate ones is that for the organizations that use uh, crowdsourcing, you, get, you, you, get, you have a direct pulse on what's going on on the ground 
without assumptions about what might be going on because you're literally hearing it from the horse's mouth. You're hearing it from the people who are living and experiencing all of these issues that you're looking to understand on a day-to-day -day basis. So it gives you a better situational awareness about what's going on as opposed to having um, just a group of people going in to, to, to get a, a lay of the land and give you a, an update on what's going on. Second is that it allows you to reach many more people than you would if you were the one collecting the data yourself. The way I think about it is people who are running research projects, when you're running a survey versus you know, blasting out and having people send the messages over to you, you're going to be able to reach many more people than you would if you were the one going to do it yourself. And third, it's also much faster. It's much faster to collect the data. So those would be the three, um, the three main benefits that come to mind for me, for the organizations. And likewise, how do the individuals in the communities that contribute their data, particularly those who might be underserved or excluded under existing models of public service delivery, benefit from participating in these crowd mapping efforts? So obviously, one of the, there's the definite and very obvious benefit of their voices being amplified in numbers, right? So it's, Yes, Angie thinks that the, this is a problem in her community, but seeing other people also doing the same thing um, or other voicing out the same problem is a strong validation for this is a problem that exists for me. But when I think about the benefits to the community, I, I strongly feel that that's something that's dependent on who is running the project. And that's because there's, it's very important to close out the feedback loop. It's, it's one thing for me to share information about a problem that I'm experiencing, and then it's a whole other thing for me to share that, that, that problem and then have somebody respond and have that problem solved. And I think that's where the benefit strongly lies because you don't want a case where people are sharing information just for the sake of it. In, in which case, you know, it could be as easy as just taking an amplifier and just screaming and, and, and that was it. And so it's really a call for anybody who's running crowdsourcing projects to be very mindful of the kind of audiences that they're dealing with, especially the underserved. Be very clear about what your goal is and what the benefit will be to them so that you're managing expectations and be clear about how you're going to close out the feedback loop. And if you're not going to close out the feedback loop, then also be very clear about that. Crisis response, election monitoring, and human, human rights monitoring are all areas where work is usually led from the top down, where individual people usually have limited means to participate. How has your experience changed how you think about the roles that communities play in holding institutions accountable for these important areas of work? And has this changed how you think about governance and public participation more broadly? That's a, that's a very interesting question. I, I don't think that my, my thought around this has changed. If anything, I think it's probably been more enforced because now here we are 13 years after platforms like Ushahidi have been around and we have evidence of how engaging with ordinary people does lead to effective change. That having your decision-making being driven by data and that data being grounded in what people's experiences are, I think it's just a major rallying call um, for more groups that are not doing it to go ahead and do it. So for me, I would say that it's enforced the need for citizen participation to be at the core of any, any sort of development or progress that we expect to see in the world anywhere. And that's just based off of all the examples that I've seen, whether it's using the Ushahidi platform or any others. It's tapping into that collective intelligence of the crowd is so, it's so important. And one, one quote tends to come to mind that I had from a friend, alone you will go faster. 
And I think that's a model that people tend to employ. You know, I need to get this work done. It's fine. I'll make the decision and go ahead. But together you go further. It might be slower, but you do go further. And thinking back on your work with Ushahidi, what do you identify as the major successes and the major challenges you encountered? What would you do differently? And what advice do you have uh, to other people who want to do similar work? Absolutely. When I think about Ushahidi's success, obviously the one that people will will tend to think of is the, the impact that our platform has had, you know, the user base and some of the examples that we've seen. But I think impact actually spans more than just use of the platform because we've supported the growth of the tech ecosystem in East Africa through involvement in projects like the IHUB, Akira Chicks, and many others. And we've also been an incubator for awesome projects awesome and innovative projects that have then spun out into innovative companies like Brick that are doing amazing things, trying to bring connectivity to people, you know, just thinking about last mile connectivity. So I would look at it holistically in that way, that we've been able to put technology into the hands of people who need it the most, but that we've also been able to inspire and support others to come up with innovative ideas around solving problems within their communities. When it comes to challenges, I think one of the biggest ones is the business model. As many know, we we rolled out a software as a service model back in 2015, but it hasn't necessarily worked as well for us. And that choice also greatly influenced many of the decisions we made, whether it came to product development or who, you know, the, the kinds of users that we went after. But I also know that that's not a challenge that is unique to Ushahidi. When you talk to many nonprofit organizations, especially within the tech world, it's, it's a thing that many are grappling with. And it also begs for us to look at it from the lens of the kind of funding environment that we operate in. Because sometimes it's some of the macro level factors that then also push you to make certain decisions that will gear you towards keeping the lights on and put you at a almost at loggerheads with, I, I need to do this work. I need to achieve this kind of impact, but how do I do it without, without getting the money? So that's probably been one of our biggest challenges. And over the last two years, those are things that we've now been trying to, to work on, like going back and talking to our users, going back to our roots when it comes to the open source, really grounding ourselves back into who, you know, who, who, who our primary, primary audiences are, who we serve and what our mission is and having that be the driving force of any of the business choices um, that we make. So that's where my advice would be. Be grounded in the mission and, and the work that you need to do and let that be the driving force. I know it's, it's, very, it's, it, it's very easy to get, I wouldn't use the word swayed, but be, be driven by where the money is coming from to then determine like what your strategy is but if you can tell what your strategy is and where you want to go fast, have that then drive the kind of partners that you want to bring on board. Can you tell us about your plans for the future? How is your team planning to further support or expand this work? Absolutely. I think there's, there's three main strategic priorities that we have right now, which are happening because of a very generous uh, donation by Mackenzie Scott earlier this year. And we, are, we plan on focusing on adapting our products to serve our users better and securely widen our reach. So it's things like adding new data sources, improving accessibility within the platform, whether it's in terms of language, adaptability, um, or making it easier for persons with disability, as well as improving digital and data security on our tools. 
Second thing we want to do is also enable communities to better maximize the use of our tech to create um, high impact. So we want to move beyond just giving them the tech tools and also just providing them with strategic support and also explore access to micro grants or giving them small injections of money to see if that would help bolster their work beyond the use of technology. Then, of course, the third thing is strengthening the foundation of a long-lasting and impactful organization. We're currently developing a five-year strategic plan in partnership with the Bridgespan Group to ensure the continuity and the growth of our organization. So that's, that's some of the work that's going on now to further support and expand our work. Well, Angela, it was great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I hope that was helpful. I hope you enjoyed this interview. To read more about Ushahidi and to explore other examples of innovative tools for crowdsourcing, collaboration, and co-creation, visit collective-intelligence.thegovlab.org. And be sure to subscribe to hear more episodes of this podcast.